0: Well, welcome to Center Church. That was supposed to be a lot louder, but you know what are you gonna do? Um, (laughs) My name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. Hey, if you're new, we're really, really glad you're here and you're in good company. Over the last 10 weeks, we've had over 100 new people join us, which is pretty amazing. And I get really, really excited when new people come. I love meeting new faces, but I get even more excited when new people get connected, when new people get connected to our church, because here's what most of us know. Connection is where you really start to grow spiritually, okay? Getting connected to serving or to a missional community is the way that you really, really grow in your faith here at Center Church, which is why every six weeks we host an event called The Weekender, okay? The Weekender, and The Weekender is designed to help you get connected, to get you connected to serving opportunities and to group life, for you to meet our pastors and to learn more about our mission as a church. Our Weekender is our one-stop shop for connection, and it is the one step that we want every new person to take, so do me a favor, if you're new or you've been around for a while, but you want to get more connected, go to our website, centerseville.com backslash weekender, and register today for our weekender happening December 11th through the 13th. I'll be there. Pastor Justin will be there. Some of the leaders from our church will be there. You will be really, really glad that you did, okay? December 11th through the 13th, I'm really excited to see some of you there. Okay, well, we're in the month of November, which means we are officially into the holiday season, okay? So raise your hand if you've started listening to Christmas music already, all right? All right, that's me too because you're good people. That's why you do that, right? Love, love Christmas music. And here's what we know. Over the next two months, you are going to be bombarded with promises. And those promises are going to come in the form of advertisements. Get the iPhone 12 and be satisfied, right? Get a Lexus with a big red bow on the front and be content. Get a new wardrobe and finally feel good about yourself. Between now and Christmas, companies like Amazon and Target and Apple are going to spend millions of dollars to convince you that you can find deep satisfaction and joy by consuming their products. But here's what we all know. The consumption of products never leads to the satisfaction that we desire. And I think I can probably prove it to you. Raise your hand if you currently feel deep satisfaction in your soul because of the gifts that you got last Christmas. Raise your hand if you can remember what you got last Christmas, right? Can anybody even remember? Some people can. Um, In the first service, my son raised his hand during the soul satisfaction part, and I was like, I'm an awesome dad, okay? Like, I don't know what I got him, but it's really doing it for him, okay? Here's what we all know intuitively. The consumption of products doesn't produce the deep satisfaction that we long for, and yet every year, advertisers find ways to convince us that this year is going to be different. That this year is going to be the year that you finally have that perfect Christmas, and it's going to be different, and it's going to give you that satisfaction that you long for. And so what do we do? We go out, we spend all of our money, and we go into debt, and then January 15th rolls around, and now you're broke, and you're still discontent. But what if there is a better way? What if there is a different way to think about money that didn't lead to debt and dissatisfaction, but led to contentment in your life and generosity with your possessions? That is what we are going to talk about over the next three weeks. We are going to look at what Jesus taught about the connection between your spiritual life and how you think about your money, the fundamental connection between your spiritual life and your finances. And if you grasp what he taught, I fully believe that it will lead to deeper satisfaction, joy, and contentment in your life. But I need to warn you, you have to take what Jesus said seriously. And you will have to become less American and more Christian in the way that you relate to your money. But here's what I think we all know. The way we're currently doing things isn't working, so why not consider what Christ has to say? And that is what we are going to do tonight by looking at Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19, which is probably the most famous teaching that Jesus ever did on money. So if you have a Bible, meet me in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context. The gospel of Matthew is a firsthand eyewitness account of Jesus's life written by one of Jesus's followers named Matthew. And before following Jesus, Matthew was a tax collector for the Roman empire, which means Matthew knew a lot about money. He understood money. He understood how to make money and how to save money. He understood how to move money around to avoid fees and taxation. And Matthew, better than most people, understood the power money had to control people because it had controlled him. He had sacrificed his family, his friends, and his faith all for the sake of money. But that radically changed when he started following Jesus. He literally got up from his tax booth, left his career behind, and became a disciple of Jesus. His relationship with Christ radically transformed his relationship to money. And I'm praying that as a result of this series, that same thing would happen for some of you, that you would have your very own Matthew moment. So that is who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, and we're jumping in to chapter 6, which is right in the middle of Jesus' most famous sermon, what many people call the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount runs from Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, and it has one really big idea, and it's this. We are all born into a society that tells us how to think about power, relationships, money, and sexuality that we're all born into a society that tells us how to think about those things. But what Jesus came to do was to start a new society, to found a new kingdom, if you will, a kingdom that operated by a different set of values and a group of people that related to power and relationships and sex and money differently. And so in chapter five, Jesus hits on relationships and power and divorce. And then in chapter six, he pivots and he starts talking about money. And that's where we pick up in verse 19. This is what he says, do not do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, why start with a negative statement? Why start by saying do not? Because Jesus was confronting the underlying cultural assumption of all of his listeners. You see, in the first century, by default, everyone accumulated money and possessions on earth. For Jews, for all the Jews that were listening to him, it was a means of acquiring power in life. The more possessions you had, the more wealth you had, the more influence that you had in society. That was the default functionality of first century Jews was accumulate as much wealth in this world as possible. And so Jesus confronts that right out of the gate. And the truth is our society is not that different from first century Jews, right? We might do it differently. We might not accumulate wealth to gain power. Maybe you accumulate wealth to gain pleasure so that you can eat out at all the new restaurants, so that you can go on exotic vacations, so that you can drive a luxury car. Maybe wealth for you is a means to security. If you have a big savings account and your investments are doing well, you feel like you're okay. right? If you have a good paying job, you feel like you're okay. Or maybe, like the Jews, it's a means for you for power. It makes you feel powerful to have money. It makes you feel powerful to be able to buy what you want to buy and do what you want to do. You see, we live about 2,000 years later, but our society functions in pretty much the same way. Because here's what we know. The default position of American society is accumulation. The default position of American society is accumulation. From your earliest memories as a kid watching cartoons, commercials come on in between selling you things, right? You you log on to Amazon and they give you 17 recommendations of things they want you to buy, right? Most universities will promote themselves to you this way. Hey, we have a great alumni network. What are they saying? We're going to help you get a high paying job. Our entire culture is oriented around accumulation just like it was for first century Jews, So Jesus starts his teaching by by confronting that belief right up front. He says, do not accumulate treasures on earth. Live differently. Live differently than your coworkers and your classmates and your family members. Swim upstream against the flow of materialism in your society. That is what Jesus is saying. Which begs the question, why? That's a pretty bold thing to say. Why should I be different than everyone else in my society, Jesus? He says, well, two reasons because earthly treasures are perishable and they're vulnerable. They're perishable and they're vulnerable. First, earthly treasures are perishable. You see how in verse 19, Jesus said, man, why lay up treasures in earth when they're going to be eaten by moths or destroyed by rust? Why, why do that? You see, in, in the first century, their wealth wasn't really in bank accounts, it was in physical possessions, And clothing was one of the most expensive things that you purchased. And you would hand clothing down from one generation to the next because fashion didn't change that quickly then, right? H&M wasn't around yet, right? You didn't just like get new clothes every day. And so a family would work, 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 and they'd buy an expensive robe. Maybe it was dyed with a special kind of dye, and then they'd hand it down to the next generation. And one of the ways that you differentiated yourself in that society was through the clothing that you wore. But Jesus says, hey, this is what's going to happen. You're going to work your whole life to accumulate these clothes, and then they're going to get eaten by insects. Because here's what we know, then and today, moths eat clothes, right? You ever been to your grandparents' house and it has that distinct smell? You know what that is? It's called mothballs. It's literally this thing you put in your drawers to keep moths from eating your clothes. It still happens today. So Jesus said, why would you do that? Why would you spend your whole life accumulating something that's going to be eaten by insects? Or how about rust? You see, another thing that families would accumulate then was um, precious metals, So a wealthy family might have a whole serving set of plates and forks and knives and cups of bronze. And it was, man, it really set you apart to have that serving where, but here's what we know, bronze tarnishes, right? It rusts. If you have a five-year-old, it gets dropped on the floor and broken, right? Like that's just what happens to things. And so Jesus says, why spend your whole life accumulating things that are so perishable, that are going to be eaten by moss and destroyed by rust? We know this is true, right? Earthly treasures rust, they chip, they fade, they get outdated. I mean, your iPhone is already out of date, isn't it? You're like, I just got this thing like six weeks ago and it's already out of date, right? Your car isn't brand new anymore. Every kitchen eventually needs to be updated, right? There is no end to the perishableness of earthly treasures. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus warns you not to accumulate treasures on earth, not because you might lose them, but because you will definitely lose them. You will either lose them in your lifetime or you will lose them when you die. Friends, I hate to be morbid, but every single thing you own is going to end up in one of two places. It's going to end up in a landfill or it's going to end up at what's called an estate sale. Okay? If you have a lot of money, it'll be called an estate sale. If you don't have a lot of money, it'll be called a yard sale. And people you don't know will come pick through your possessions and offer your descendants small amounts of money for it and make fun of the jeans that you wore. Like, I hate, but like that, isn't that what's going to happen? Like all this stuff that we accumulate, that is where it's going to end up. And Jesus says, look, why spend your life accumulating stuff that is going to rust and fade and be eaten by moss? So that's his first point. Don't lay up treasures on earth because they're perishable. Here's his second point. Don't lay up treasures on earth because earthly treasures are vulnerable. Earthly treasures are vulnerable. For example, livestock was the way that you built up a retirement plan then. There was no 401k plan, right? What you did is you had, a live, you had livestock and they multiplied. And so every year, your flock got a little bit bigger and that was your retirement plan. So you'd spend your whole life building your flock only to have it attacked by thieves. Livestock theft was a huge issue back then. Bandits would come in, they'd drive off your shepherds and they'd take all of your hard earned retirement plan. Jesus says, why would you why, like, why would you spend your whole life accumulating something that is so vulnerable? And it's easy for us to say, oh, well, you know, I don't have livestock, and my wealth is much more secure than than it was then. I beg to differ. I mean, this past spring, because of the coronavirus, global stock markets experienced the fastest financial crash that has ever happened in history. In one day alone, on Monday, March 9th, the American market dropped 7% in a day, and the average American lost $5,682 in investments. In one day. That is what you call vulnerable. Uh, One of my favorite authors is a guy named Trevin Wax, and he wrote a book called This Is Our Time, and he talked about the different narratives that we're tempted to believe that are not true scripturally. And one of those, he said, is that um, you can buy happiness. And so he said, you know, America teaches us that you can buy happiness, and one of the ways that you get uh, brought into this is, man, I just want to have a dream home. You know, like one day I'm going to have a dream home, and he said that he realized how foolish that was um, when his sister and brother-in-law started to build their dream home. So that, you know, he, his brother-in-law had been in, uh, studying medicine for years. He'd finally graduated. He'd started his own medical practice. He was making all kinds of money, paid off his debt. And so they bought this beautiful hill, this lot, house up on a hill. They planted it themselves. They built it. I mean, it was gorgeous. It was like a southern living home. I mean, it had this huge patio, all this beautiful furniture, this whole thing. So to, to break the house in, his sister and brother-in-law welcomed all the family over for Thanksgiving. And he was like, man, it was everything you would ever want. It was everything that a movie would ever look like, you know, like the parents around the fireplace, the kids playing out in the backyard, board games on the patio, the whole thing. The following Monday, it burned to the ground, burned down. There's a gas explosion in the attic. His sister and brother-in-law got the kids out. Thankfully, they weren't hurt. And they walked to the bottom of the hill and they watched their dream home burn down. And he said, that moment made me realize just how vulnerable every earthly treasure is. You see, our treasures try to convince us that they're really secure, but friends, we know that they aren't. We know that they aren't. And so Jesus says, look, don't do that. Don't store up treasures that are so vulnerable, because when we do, you know what happens? We get very anxious about them, don't we? I mean, isn't money one of the number one things that you worry about? You stress about, are my sales numbers going to come up? Is my industry going to back, you know, bounce back? Am I going to get furloughed? Or if you're a college student, what do you say, man, am I going to get a good internship? Am I going to get a good first job? Am I going to make money? I've seen this come out um, with college students, if I can speak to you for just a second. We do a a summer discipleship and missions intensive here called City Project. And it is amazing. It's a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It will change your life. But we talk to a lot of college students, and they say, well, I could never do that. We say, why? They say, well, I have to get an internship this summer. I say, well, why do you have to get an internship? They say, well, because I have to get a good first job. I say, well, why do you have to get a good first job? And they say, because I have to make money. What is that? You are possessed by your possessions, right? You are not pursuing an opportunity, a once in a life opportunity to grow in your faith and be used around the world because you're so worried about making money. Jesus says, look, if you put your hope in things that are vulnerable, you're always going to be anxious about them. You're always going to be stressed about them. He says, so don't do that. Instead, Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So instead of accumulating treasure on earth, he says, lay up treasure in heaven. Why? Well, because heavenly treasures are lasting. Heavenly treasures are lasting. They can't be destroyed by moth or rust. They never need to be upgraded. They never need to be updated. They never need to be replaced. Heavenly treasures are imperishable, undefiled, and unfading which means whatever you lay up in heaven, you will enjoy forever without it ever degrading. It will never perish. Heavenly treasures are lasting. Second, heavenly treasures are secure. Heavenly treasures are secure. They can't be stolen by thieves. They can't burn down. They can't be cut in half by a bad day on the stock market. And because heavenly treasures are secure, you don't have to worry. If your treasure is in heaven, it's secure. You don't have to be anxious about losing it. You don't have to be anxious about, not having enough of it. You see, Jesus wants you to accumulate treasures. He just wants you to accumulate them in the right place. That's a summary of verses 19 and 20. Jesus wants you to accumulate treasures. He just wants you to accumulate them in the right place. So practically speaking, what does that look like? How do you actually accumulate heavenly treasures? Well, you use your time and you use your talent and you use your treasure to serve God and others. So practically, it looks like Man, investing your time into discipling other people, into giving into a missional community, into joining a serving team. It looks like you devote a portion of your income to the work of God through the church and the, the work of God through various organizations and missionaries and charities. You use your talents not just for yourself, but to serve people in our community. Maybe you have a medical background and you could go to man, an underprivileged country around the world and you could serve people there with your nursing degree. Man, there, there are as many different ways to lay up treasures in heaven as there are different people but it is a fundamentally different focus. You see, it focuses on the Lord and his kingdom advancing and not on accumulating as much stuff as you can before you die. And sometimes when I talk to people about this, they say, well, how much should, how much should I invest? How much should I give? And my answer is usually something like, well, I don't know, how much of a difference do you want to make? How, I, I mean, how, many, how, how much treasure do you want to accumulate in heaven? Do you want to spend your life accumulating things that are going to end up in a landfill, or do you want to spend your life seeing people's lives changed for eternity. And I think most of us in our best moments say, man, I want to do the second thing. I don't want to spend my life accumulating stuff that's going to pass away. I want to make a difference with my life. I want to see people's lives changed because I was here. But we have a hard time carrying that out. And the reason is what Jesus talks about in verse 21. Look at it with me. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That word for, for is... It indicates because. Why should I just do what Jesus told me to do in verse 19 and 20? Because of this truth that Jesus teaches us. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This means that your heart follows your treasure. Your heart follows your treasure. And in the Bible, the word heart refers to who you really are. It refers to what you love most. Right? And, and Jesus said in Luke 6, 45, for example, that over, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What that means is that whatever you love most in your heart eventually comes out in your behaviors and your words. So if you're married, you know this is true. If you are are mad at your spouse in your heart, you can only hide it for so long, right? It eventually comes out in a snide comment or a cold shoulder. Maybe you're mad at your roommate because they like keep leaving dishes out. Like it's gonna come out. And so with that in mind, that your heart is the real you, consider again what Jesus Christ just said. He said, wherever you invest your time, Wherever you invest your money, that is where your heart is going to go. You see, friends, treasure has a gravitational pull on our hearts. Wherever you put your treasure, your heart is going to follow because there's a fundamental connection between your spiritual life and how you think about time and money. There's a fundamental connection between your spiritual life and how you think about time and money. This came came home to me personally a couple years ago. My grandparents gave me some stock in general electric, you know, like GE, they make like appliances and stuff. And I, I mean, I didn't know anything about GE before I got the stock. I didn't care anything about GE, but all of a sudden I had treasure in GE and I started to notice them, you know, like I'd go to the store and be like, that looks like a good GE dryer, you know? And I go to my friend's house and be like, nice GE dishwasher, buddy. You know, like I, and I started to like check their profit, you know, stuff and like check their re- returns. Why? Cause I had treasure there. Cause all of a sudden I had treasure in GE and now my heart was drawn to GE. Well that practically for you means the same thing. If you have treasure in heaven, if you accumulate treasure in heaven, your heart's going to be drawn to heaven. But if all of your treasure is on earth, if the majority of your treasure is on earth, your heart is going to be drawn to earth. You're going to be knit to earth and you're going to have a very difficult time following Jesus because your treasure has a gravitational pull on your heart. This came to home to me really um, man practically and powerfully and it was honestly a little bit sad. A couple of years ago when I was having lunch with a friend of mine who said, Josh, I just can't seem to grow in my spiritual life. Like, I want to follow Jesus. I want to grow, but I just can't make any progress. Can you help me? And so we just talked for a while. And in the conversation, it came out that he and his family attended church about once a month because they were spending a lot of time, you know, at vacation homes and with travel sports and like doing various things. Um, they weren't involved in any sort of midweek group because he just said they were too busy. They had all these other things that, that they were doing. And that they'd like to give more, but they couldn't because they had some pretty high car payments. They had two brand new cars. They lived in a really big house and they were like members at a a pretty expensive country club. And so as I talked to this guy, I just realized this guy's got no shot. Like I just, I'd have nothing for this guy. The reason he can't make progress in his relationship with Christ is because it's like he's wearing a 200 pound weight around his neck. It's like he's trying to run a marathon with a weighted vest on. All of his treasure is in this world. And so every time he tries to turn over a new leaf and he tries to get serious about his faith, he just gets dragged down by the gravity of his treasure. My friend wasn't growing spiritually because all this treasure was here on earth. It wasn't in heaven. Friends, Jesus doesn't want that for you and neither do I. Jesus doesn't want you to be dragged down by your treasure. I don't either. I want you to grow in your relationship with Christ. I want you to experience increasing satisfaction and joy and contentment in him. But in order for that to happen, you have to take off your weighted vest. You have to detach your heart from this world. You have to shift your focus from accumulating treasures on earth, and you need to shift your focus on accumulating treasures in heaven. In verse 24, Jesus brings this whole teaching to a point, and he's pretty direct. Jesus' words, he says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here's what that means. Your love of God will drive out your love of money or your love of money will drive out your love of God. Your love of God will drive out your love of money or your love of money will drive out your love of God. You cannot serve God and money. That's what Jesus is saying. Simple enough, but here's the problem. Almost no one thinks they are serving money. If I asked you when you came in, hey, raise your hand if you are serving money, none of you would have raised your hand, right? Because money has a blinding influence on us. We very rarely understand how money is affecting us, which is why in Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus said something very interesting. This is what he said. Watch out. He said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, what do you watch out for? You watch out for things that maybe you can't see. What do you have to be on guard against? You have to be on guard against getting ambushed by something, right? So Jesus says, hey, watch out for greed, watch out for money, because you're probably not going to know that you're serving it. You know what he never said watch out for? Adultery. Because like, you kind of know if you're committing adultery, right? Like not to be crass, but like, that's a hard thing not, you know, like, you know it's coming. But when it comes to money, we often can't see its influence on us. A recent survey was done of millennials, uh, and the group surveyed was asked, um, are you generous? And 29% of millennials said, "Um, I'm very generous. That's how they responded, okay, 29%. Another 70% said that I am generous, okay? So of millennials, 99% that were surveyed believed that they were either very generous or generous, okay? So this group had a very high opinion of themselves. But did you know that last year, the average millennial gave less than $50 to anything? Now, what does that mean? Does that mean there's no generous millennials out there? No, I'm sure there are. I hope there's some in our church, right? But what it means is that we often think we're more generous than we actually are. We think we're more generous than we actually are. When you start to ask these questions of people in the church, what you find is that most churchgoers perceive themselves to give between 8 and 9% to the church, but we actually look at the numbers, it's it's more like 2 to 4%. So we think that we're being really generous, but in actuality, We're not. You see, the problem is we don't know that we're serving money. We're blind to it. We haven't watched out. And we've been basically deceived by the culture that we live in. We don't know that we're serving money. So the question is, how do we find out? Well, we have to ask ourselves some diagnostic questions. We have to be honest with our hearts. So I'm just going to give you three questions, three diagnostic questions to help you understand, are you serving money? Here's question number one. Do you tithe? Do you tithe? So throughout the Bible it says that every follower of Christ should give at least 10% of your income to support the work of the church. And then above and beyond that, to support charities and missionaries and relief of the poor. Right? That, that's throughout all of the scriptures. So the question is, are you doing that? College student, young professional, family, retiree, doesn't matter how much money you make, the question is, are you investing 10% of what God has entrusted you with into his purposes in the world. And that might sound unrealistic to you. It might sound outrageous. You might say, I could never make ends meet if I gave 10% to the church. And I I get that, I really do. And you're not strange. Do you know that the average American church, only 20% of the people tithe? So if you don't tithe, you're not an anomaly, but to be honest with you, you are serving your money. And I hate to be so frank about that, but I don't know what other conclusion to draw. Like if you and I, if we're followers of Christ and we've been saved by a gracious, generous God who gave his one and only son so that we could be forgiven, and then he lays out here's the minimum standard of generosity and we're not meeting the minimum standard, what other conclusion can we draw than we're serving our money? And you might that might sound self-serving because I'm a pastor, right? If that sounds self-serving, give it somewhere else, okay? You don't have to give it to center church, but are you giving any, are you giving to another church? Are you giving to a ministry? And I know that you might be really mad at me right now, but that's probably because you're realizing, oh man, I I actually am serving my money. Now, are there exceptions to this? Sure. Maybe something traumatic has happened in your life, right? And you would like to be tithing, but you just just can't right now. That's different. But the majority of us could tithe. We've just chosen not to. The majority of us could tithe, but we've chosen not to, maybe because we chose to get you know, a new car that we didn't really need, so now we've got this big car payment, we got a house that's probably bigger than we really needed, and now we have this big house payment, or we have all kinds of maybe consumer debt from things that we've done, or we took that trip to Europe and we charged it, and now we're trying to pay it back, or you know, we eat out all the time, I mean, on and on and on. We could tithe, we've just chosen not to, why? Because we serve our money. And I know that's frank, and I know that's very direct, but I just don't know, what I mean, if I'm going to be... If I'm going to be ethical as a pastor, I have to teach what Jesus taught. And so that's a good question to start with. Do I tithe? Here's a second question. Do you have a plan for your money? Do you have a plan for your money? Proverbs 21.5 says, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Or another way to say that is if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. It's one thing to have good intentions when it comes to generosity. It's a whole other thing to actually follow through. I've seen this in my marriage. I have excellent intentions in my marriage, right? I intend to take my wife out on multiple dates every month. It's the follow-through that I struggle with, okay? It's like finding a babysitter, making a reservation, putting it on the calendar. My intentions are much better than my follow-through. But here's what we all know. I don't get any points as a husband for intending to love my wife well, right? I only get points for actually doing it. Well, the same is true when it comes to generosity. Many of us have good intentions to be generous. We like the idea of generosity, but we're not actually generous because we haven't taken that next step to execute. So a good question to ask is, do you have a plan for your money? Do you have a monthly budget? Do you know how much is coming in, in, in income, what your expenses are? Have you divided your expenses up into you know, necessary expenses, things like rent and you know, groceries and electricity, and then you know, luxury expenses, things like you know, entertainment streaming services? right? And, and, you know, travel and eating out. Do you have a percentage that you set aside to invest in the church every month? Do you have a plan for trying to grow in that area of your life, right? Are you trying to become more generous? I told someone this, you know, what if, what if we were talking and I was like, you know, I feel like I'm a pretty decent husband. I'm probably like a 10% husband. And I'm good with that. Like, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to be a 10% husband for the rest of my marriage because I think that's enough. You'd be like you dirtbag, right? Like, no. Like we all know. Like if you're following Christ, your your goal, my goal, should be to be a better husband every year. Your goal should be know the Bible more next year. Pray, have a better prayer life next year, right? Be a better parent, whatever. So why wouldn't we apply that same principle to generosity? Generosity is an aspect of discipleship. Jesus talked more about generosity and possessions than he did heaven and hell combined, because he understood there is this connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about our money. So do you have? a plan. Finally, number three, are you defensive about your money? Are you defensive about your money? Are you mad at me right now? Right? Are you just mad right now? Are you frustrated that I'm talking about this? Have you called together arguments in your mind why this doesn't apply to you? Right? Are you bringing up every counter-argument that you can't, oh, he's just a pastor grubbing after money? Which is why I say, seriously, give it somewhere else. God will take care of our church. Don't let that be an excuse for you to not be generous is money just off the table for you? Are you just not willing to talk about it? You're not willing to let Jesus be Lord of that area of your life? I mean, this is what I've found in my own life. When I'm reading the Bible and I come to something that makes me really mad, it usually means I'm defending something I don't want to give up. Isn't that true? Like in every other area of your life, when you read the Bible and you get mad, it's because God is putting his finger on something and being like, this needs to change and you don't want it to. So if, if you get really defensive about your money and you don't want to talk to anybody about it and you're not willing to talk to your D group about it and you're not willing to give and, you, and you're not going to come back next week because we're talking about money, right? It's just worth asking the question honestly, like, oh man, maybe I serve money more than I realize. I know that this sermon has been challenging, right? I knew it would be when I was preparing it. But the reason that I'm, I'm talking about this, the reason that Jesus talked about this is because Jesus wants good for you. Here's what we know, friends. The accumulation of wealth and the consumption of products hasn't given you what you want. It hasn't led to the satisfaction that you're looking for. Year after year, it continues to fail. So why keep going around that cul-de-sac? Why keep doing the same thing year after year, hoping it's going to change? You know, Einstein said that that is the definition of insanity, doing the exact same thing, expecting different results. Why not consider what Christ has to say about money and how it could change your life. Friends, Jesus doesn't want generosity from you. He wants generosity for you. I'm the same way. I don't want it from you. I want it for you. Jesus wants your treasure to be in heaven so that your heart will be drawn there because that is where true life is found. That is where satisfaction and joy that you've been looking for your whole life is found. So the question is, how do we change? Right? If I've been asking these questions and you're realizing like, man, I, I serve money or, you know, I got to 10% a couple years ago or recently. I just, I just put, it in the, I put the car in the, in the you know, garage. I just stopped trying to grow at all. Man, how do we change? How do we stop treasuring this world so much and, and start treasuring heaven? Well, we do it by considering why Jesus came to earth. Think about it. Why would Jesus come to earth? In heaven, he had all authority. He had all power. He had all status. He had all wealth and all riches, and yet he gave all that up, and he was born in a horse trough, and he was born to a very poor family, and he lived an impoverished life, and he died without a single possession to his name, and when he had nothing else to lose, he lost his life. Why? For you. For you. You see, he had a greater treasure than all of the wealth of heaven, than all of the praise of the angels, than all of the power and glory and authority that are rightfully his, that he executed from sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, and that was to redeem you. And Jesus left all that treasure behind because you were a greater treasure. My wife and I own a townhouse. We have a couple of cars. We have some furniture, some clothes, some electronics. We have a savings account. We have a little bit of money in a retirement fund. I would give all of that up in a heartbeat if it meant saving one of my kids. I would sell every possession. I'd move in with my parents. I'd go into deep debt. I would do whatever it took to save one of my kids because they are precious to me. Friends, that is what Jesus has done for you. But he went further even than I would go. Because he didn't just give up all of his possessions. He didn't just give up his status and his standing. He gave up his very life. He shed his blood so that you could be forgiven of your sins. He died on the cross for every greedy moment that you've ever had. He gave up his life for every time you've been mad at a pastor for talking about money, for every time you've overspent on yourself, for every time you've believed the advertisers once again, and you've gone into more debt, and you've sent more money, and you've neglected God and his kingdom and his church. For every time you have failed and I have failed, for every time that you have served money and I have served money, and we've lived more like Americans than we have like Christians, Jesus hung on the cross for us. Because even with all of our screw-ups, we are still precious to him. Friends, that is how you become generous. By looking at the cross and the generosity of Christ for you. And as you do, it melts your heart and it changes you. And you say, you know what? I don't need to spend my life accumulating stuff that's going to end up in a landfill. I want to spend my life for the kingdom of God. I want to spend my life making a difference for eternity. Because that's what Jesus did for me. I want to leave you with the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. One of my favorite verses, it says this, if you are in Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. you know what that word possession literally is in the Greek? Treasure. Treasure. Friends, you are God's Treasure which is why Jesus was willing to lay it all down so that he could redeem you. Let that be what motivates you. Stop accumulating things on earth that are gonna perish and to start accumulating treasures in heaven that never will. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, thank you for this word. It's challenging, but we need to be challenged, Lord. It's countercultural, but we need that. God, I pray for my own heart that you show me the ways that I'm serving money. I pray for every single person here in this room, everybody watching online, that Holy Spirit, you do a great work in us over the next few weeks. And you would shape us to be different, different than our coworkers and classmates and family members, different than our society. That we would not be a people that spends our life accumulating that which would perish, but a people that would spend our lives joyfully accumulating treasures in heaven that never will. God, give us faith to be different. Give us a clear vision of the gospel and of the cross, that we would do so with joy and that we would do so with faith. We love you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. In response to these things, would you stand and worship with us?